Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Today, we welcome one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Alexandra DePledge, who runs the architectural company, Resi. I first met Alex in 2014 when she was running the cleaning company, Hassel. I had just started work at the Institute of Directors, and I had been tasked with modernizing the look and feel of the Grand Institution, who had a rather traditional headquarters based on Pall Mall. For our American friends, that is the same street which Clarence House, where Prince Charles lives, is on. It is a grand building and about as far away from a stereotypical East London start-up hub stacked with ping-pong tables that you could possibly get. But arguably, the IOD was the first co-working space that ever existed in London. Simon Walker, the Director General of the IOD at the time, himself a man who had been Press Secretary to the Queen, could see a new wave of entrepreneurs coming through and we were working on lots of different approaches to attract them to engage and become members of the IOD. After all, it had been an institution that was originally founded in 1906. So I was tasked with reaching out to that younger wave of entrepreneurs, making their way, disrupting old traditional sectors. I was writing a report on the sharing economy, which was trying to persuade the Treasury to increase tax allowances. This brought me in touch with many great entrepreneurs like Debbie Waskow, Greg Marsh, and today's guest, Alex DePledge. I had clearly made quite an impression on Alex as she asked me to apply for the CEO role of the think tank and lobby group that she was chairing at the time called the Coalition for a Digital Economy. All I will say about that interview is that fingers crossed today's goes better. Suffice to say, I didn't get that particular role, although another impressive female would call me in the following weeks and offer me an altogether different one. Alex De Pledge is what the UK needs more of, an entrepreneur who has sold one multi-million pound business, who then decides not to sit on a beach or even angel invest, but is determined to try and repeat the success. She'll talk us through how she wants to disrupt the housing industry by making the process for extensions much more streamlined and better for the customer. If you have ever been through any building work, you'll probably be nodding your head in agreement at this statement. She'll talk us through the whole major plans that she has and how she hopes to float the company in a few years' time. A thank you to our partners for the second series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, the Octopus Group, who make this show possible. There are lots of companies who claim to be entrepreneurial and support entrepreneurs, but Octopus really live and breathe it. So much so that if you are one of Octopus's 750 employees and you have your own startup idea, Octopus will give you the time off to go and start the business and keep your old job open for you. They call it their springboard program. If you want to hear more about it, it's worth checking out the third episode in this series with the founder, Chris Hewlett. He talks us through how Octopus began as a fund management company, but is now expanding into lots of other areas, such as Octopus Energy and how healthcare is one of the big areas that can be disrupted. On to today's episode. Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, Alex. We're starting the second series by asking everyone what their route into work was. So what was the first work experience and job that you had? Oh, good question. I guess the first paid job I had was the paper round. I had two paper rounds when I was 11. Um, you can tell what sort of parents I had. that they, they were like, as soon as I could, you know, go out safely, I, I had to get a job. And then I guess my first paycheck was the weekend work that I used to do at the Midland Hotel. So I started there when I was 13. I don't even know if that's legal anymore, Jimmy, actually. But I started there when I was 13. And I used to, um, I started laying tables for banquets and weddings 
and then I moved into the restaurant and um, did sweet prepping and then ended up as a waitress and I stayed there actually from 13 to the age of 21 I did it in between university too and I, I think what I love about that job even now I'm so grateful for it because it taught me how to talk to anyone about anything so whether that was having banter with the chefs in the kitchen and it being you know a bit blue to you know walking out on onto the hardwood floor and, and you know serving the hoity-toity class of Bradford which believe it or not we actually have in Bradford absolutely I'm I'm laughing partly at the chef as well I think I learned most of my swear words from working as a uh, as a waiter to be honest at, from 15 and so all all that experience leads you to running resi today it would be great to know what resi is and what the mission for it is and how you came up with the idea yeah, sure. So Resi helps you grow your home. And I think in its simplest incarnation, it's an architectural practice. But I think we didn't really stop there with just it being architecture, because as many people will know from the past sort of year and a half being cooped up in our homes, we spent probably a lot of time thinking how we can improve the spaces that we live in. But actually having that idea to making that a reality is quite a long and painful journey, or historically has been painful. And that's because there are so many people involved and so many different stages and a lot of language and technical language you won't have come across in, unless you've done it before. So the real vision of Resi is to take a, a, you know, a customer from ideation to you know, sitting in their new home with their feet up. And in doing that, you know, we, we provide the architectural drawings, we act as your planning agent, and we find you the contractors that you need to complete that process. And you know, even we even finance it with our in-house financing team. But I think the real kind of secret sauce of Resi is we make sure that you're asking the right questions at the right time in the right order so you don't come unstuck because you're kind of, as a consumer in the space, on the back foot from an education perspective. So that's what Resi is really there for. It's a full service platform to make sure you don't go wrong on that journey. Exactly. And it's using that going through a home extension is probably something that people are only going to go through three or four times in their life, I imagine. And there are probably 10 years between each one of those. So it's all changed anyway, even if you have been through the experience before. Whereas you have that sort of knowledge stack, for uh, want of a better phrase, of what the questions are and can kind of be on those sides, uh, on the side of the consumer going through the process, because so much of it is, is tilted the other way at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about bubbles of people with lines between them and you think about the trade network, so the contractors, building control, you know, your electrician, uh, your tradespeople, all those people, they all work together multiple times. You see it on building sites, you'll always see the same builder will use the same structural engineer and the same building control. So there's a level of trust between the people who work on your home. But like you just said, you might do this once or twice in your life. So your connection to that marketplace of people is really thin, like tiny microscopic line connecting you. So there's not a lot of trust. I mean, how many dinner parties or nights out have you been in the pub and you've had someone talk about doing their loft conversion or doing, you know, some something to their house and moaning about how terribly wrong it's gone? The way that the marketplace is set up is it's not designed to engender trust and knowledge. And that's what Resi's really trying to do is to connect those dots for everyone involved and make it a lot smoother, less expensive journey that people are not afraid to go on. And almost every entrepreneur that has come on the show so far has started out trying to solve a personal problem that they encountered. We've all got homes and we've all lived in them. I'm getting the impression that this was a personal problem for you at some point. 
Yeah, so after I sold Hassle and Jules and I sort of said, right, we're never doing that again because it was just so quick and, and so stressful. We sort of retreated into our respective homes and I decided I was going to put a side return on my home in Streatham. And so I asked my friend for their local architect. The architect came round and we just went through this process and there wasn't anything particularly like at that point wrong with it. But it was a lot of paper, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of going to their office, a lot of really trying hard to sort of envisage what the space would look like. You know, there wasn't really any 3D rendering or, or kind of 3D walk around of it. And I was sort of four or five grand in the hole and I just thought to myself, there has to be a much better way of doing this. And again, to go back to that questioning, I just, I didn't know what questions I should be asking. Like I didn't think to ask about soundproofing or like thermal heating. And I didn't know that chasing a, a tap into a wall was going to be twice as expensive as having the piping exposed. And it's this sort of stuff that we all know our homes, we all live in them. But I don't think we really understand unless you go through it, like how they're constructed and what that works like. And so I guess Jules and I just thought we could bring some of that digital experience to bear on, a, on an industry that really had sort of been left alone for the past sort of 70 or 80 years. And what is the the grand vision for Resi? You know, we talk about total addressable market and investor language like that. There is a lot of focus politically on new homes being built, for example. But what you're talking about is actually the existing housing stock that we've got there that is so often overlooked when it comes to policy and, and public debate. No, I, you're absolutely right. And I do laugh, actually, when I see, I mean, I laugh ironically, Jimmy, not like laugh, ha ha, it's funny. <laughs> but I do laugh when I see the debate in the in the press being played out and, it, and in Parliament, because everyone's obsessed with the fact that we've got a housing crisis. We don't actually have a housing crisis. We have a crisis in a specific type of house in particular regions of the country. And that's driven much more by the where the jobs are and, and where economic activity is placed than it is on how much green land, a green space that is or kind of the schools it's really driven by economic activity so we've a shortage of two bedroom flats and we've a shortage of start like family homes and they're in the southwest of england so it's, it's much more localized i think than people give it credit for and when i look at the situation you know i see a FTSE 100 that's dominated by new builders persimmons red row wimpy all these sort of companies that are only building you know a quarter of a million homes a year and yet we've got 26 million existing homes in the uk that get hardly any media or political attention you know if we talk in very loose terms about building back better and the green revolution and like how we're going to do that but we know from experience because there's been a green agenda for you know retrofitting homes and things like that it's not working in its current incentivization and so you know I think Resi's real ambition here is to be the voice for all things residential but also to deliver on all those things residential and the other interesting fact that I find about this kind of space that we're now in is that the UK has actually got our gross undersupply of architects. We've only got 35,000 chartered architects in comparison to somewhere like Italy or Spain, where they've got like 150,000. But what I find really just really surprising that it's only 3% of registered architects sit in practices of 10 or more which means that 97% of architects work alone or in very small units around the country. So it's very fragmented, which means that they've had the same productivity since the 1950s because there's very little spare capacity in those sorts of budgets. So, you know, any R&D or any real innovation. And, and that's where I, I see Resi filling that void. So you're trying to make the process more efficient by bringing more people under one roof when it comes to all things residential and home improvements and extensions. That's essentially what you're trying to do. How many people have you helped so far in this journey? Uh, about three and a half thousand. 
So we do at the minute about 170 planning applications a month, which is considerably bigger than anybody else. So do you help with planning applications? Because that's also a tricky part of any process. So we are the highest user of the planning portal in terms of filing householder planning applications. And what we do is we actually act as the planning agent for householders. So if you came to me and you wanted to put an extension on your flight tooting or completely knock it down, we would do all that paperwork and liaise with the council and hopefully get you that positive outcome. The planning portal constantly updates about where we are in the league tables for the number of applications because they can't quite believe that we're processing so many. Well, anything that we can do to improve housing stock in the UK will be massively welcomed. And just talk us through the different areas that you're hiring in at the, at the moment as well, and where you see it going in terms of the skills. Because obviously, this you know it's not your first radio, as we've said. You've done a startup, a successful one before. What are the skills that are most important for people to have? I'm always looking for people that are curious and challenging. So one of the least valued skills in society is questioning. You've got a little girl and, and obviously I've got two kids. And at a certain age, and just asking so many questions, it drives you nuts. And then suddenly we stop asking questions. And I always find it really interesting in interviews when I sort of say to people, do you have any questions? And they, they don't have any questions. And it's like, how can you not have any questions? And it, it seems to be a common theme, you know, in modern society that when you've got so much knowledge at your fingertips and you can get that knowledge instantly through Google or, you know, whichever search engine you use, we stopped asking questions. And so what I really look for at Resi is people are curious and they're inquiring and they want to know why. And with that questioning, I often think that comes hand in hand with challenging challenging the status quo asking why is it this way like can we not do it a better way so that's what we really look for but along with what surprise we, we look for people who are progressive and democratic and and honest but really it's, it's that curiously challenging element that we're looking for for people to come and join resi I think that being curious is is one of the best traits that you can have. You know that we're hiring this podcast at the moment and I've had some fabulous applications and it's all about thinking about where the future of the world is going and the economy. And so you you need that and you need to be interested in it. And you're based in Brixton as well. So where are you hiring for now? Yeah, we're based in Brixton. And, and on that question as well, I always think it's the, it's the one thing that AI is going to really struggle, like machines are really going to struggle to invent questions they can answer them but they can't question and so that is the competitive advantage of the human race over machines so on that we're pretty much hiring for every single role that you would expect whether it's software engineers data scientists marketeers architects we obviously hire a lot of architects but I think to be honest I don't really want to like pigeonhole into roles we will I will create a role for a good person hands down it doesn't matter whether we've got a role open or not I've been known to find people in very strange places like I've hired directly out of restaurants I've hired out of Halford you know I've hired when I was on holiday I just see people and you can see that they've got the right attributes and I will just go and find a job for them and I've had you know crazy people approach me in different ways one person did a whole business case for me on on something they thought we should add to the business and I gave that person a job so I just encourage anyone who thinks that resi is exciting to apply or email me directly because if you're good then we'll find a home for you at resi and when you say that can you, can you give us a story and an example of, of somebody you've touched on some things on holiday at Halfords there just you know you come across amazing people all the time and particularly going back to your point about weddings in Bradford you know so much of what we do is about customer service and interacting with people so you can find these can you tell us a story about where that's worked out surprisingly well um the one that 
always springs to mind to me is Lily. There's a really good restaurant in Clapham Old Town um, called Trinity, and they've got this upstairs restaurant, which is gorgeous if you've ever been to it. And they're probably going to now find out what happened to their best waitress. But (laughs) yeah, sorry. We went in there one night and this waitress just blew me away. And I guess, you know, I know what I'm looking for with waitresses because I spent 12 years doing it myself. And I just remember just everything about her was engaging, was considerate, and she was just so attentive. And it's all of the things that you look at for someone when you, you know, you're wanting them to do a customer facing job. And I just gave her my business card at the end of the meal and just said, I've got a job for you at Resi. If you're interested, take a look at the company and send me an email. And she literally emailed me that night and said, I would love to come work at Resi. And, and she's now one of our top, I think she's actually the top performing design business consultant that we have in the business. And my husband went to get his scooter fixed at Halfords. And we were just blown away by the guy that was fixing the scooter. And he's now one of our customer delight team. So he's the account manager for a bunch of customers in a studio. And, and he just, you know, blows me away. Dean blows me away every day. He's just so good at what he does. So I think sometimes that's the best interview, Jimmy, when you see people in action and they don't know they're on an interview. Yeah. I think that's why it works. Yeah, we talked with Rachel Carroll on this podcast recently just about the traditional model of CV interview. It just feels very kind of 20th century when it comes to hiring talent it's not a particularly natural process no it's not and, and if I may just kind of like build on that like my hiring manager's been off sick for two weeks and so I've sort of got stuck into hiring for two roles that are quite urgent and I've gone through one night I did 67 CVs and the next night I did 90 and I, I'm not going to lie to you Jimmy I cried at the end of it because some of these CVs you could you could see the commitment and motivation like coming through in the CV and you can kind of you can see the pattern in them they've not been cut a break right they've not been hired anywhere because they've got all the right qualifications but you know they were working in mcdonald's after having done a master's and things like that and i'm not putting mcdonald's down it's just that had i been in mcdonald's watching that person do their job it's so much easier to see how that person's going to fit and give them a chance because that's all they're looking for right is this chance whereas actually when you get 90 cvs that are all the same it's really hard to see the differentiators and i guess that's why i really like going around other businesses and sort of looking at people in action and I just realized now that everyone's going to avoid having me come into their business in the future in case I come to poach their staff. But I do think the traditional model of CVs is broken. And honestly, I think you're much better off sending a video in. I think somebody who sent me a video and told me why they should work at Resi is probably going to get a job even if they haven't necessarily got all the right qualifications, because it just shows a level of engagement and, and uh, sort of, in, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, Intuitive? Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. I think it just shows a real desire. And I think that's what we're looking for now is like people who are able to cut through the noise because there is so much noise out there when it comes to recruiting talent. No, I think creative ways and people try to do different things can be really powerful. It's just making sure those things get seen. And that's always a bit of a challenge on this. But I know you'll laugh at this. We had Anne Bowden on uh, from Starling Bank a couple of weeks ago. And I know that a number of people, she gave out her email address on air and a number of people have been in touch with her since, kind of explaining why they'd like to work at Starling and so on, because they were so impressed with her, which is kind of the point of the podcast, really. What made you, just to go back to sort of earlier in your career and starting out, you know, you went and worked in consultancy for a while to yeah. begin with. And just talk about the the sort of different nature of that and, and kind of what made you leave what is a comfortable, safe, interesting environment to work. What made you kind of take the leap into entrepreneurship? 
I think, so I really loved consulting and I think Accenture gave me a really good foundation in, in just stuff that you don't learn at university, you know, like the softer skills. But I think ultimately where I got to was we were working for lots of, you know, FTSE 100 companies and you sort of see how size sort of starts to encumber people, like they become less dynamic, less nimble, more kind of risk averse. And I, I got kind of sick of sort of coming up with these great ideas and fulfilling the client brief only to have it gather dust on the shelf. And so I think for me, what I love about running my own business and love about startups to be honest with you is I love watching you know something being born from chaos because you know a startup is real chaos and your chances of survival are in single digits so the fact I've managed to do this twice you know I'm really proud of myself for that and I know that's not a very kind of like PC thing to say like it's a bit egotistical but I am like it's hard to survive but watching something being born and creating it and being nimble and changing tack when something doesn't work and really delighting a customer and bringing them something of value that is like a drug to me I just get high off of it and I, and that's what I was searching for I think on leaving Accenture was the ability to enact change and that's quite a common theme I think throughout my life is I like to be in control I like to make things better and it was quite hard to do that in a consulting role on a grand scale like you could do it on a small scale but you, you didn't see whole scale change whereas actually you know you do now Res is providing a different way to do things that is more reasonably priced it's quicker it's more consumer friendly it's more easy to understand and, and I think that can only be like a positive on an industry and I, I don't like the word disruptor because it makes it feel like you're kind of doing away with what's gone before and actually I, I'm very humbled and in awe of what's gone before because that's allowed me the platform to learn from and it's been in existence for a long time so we shouldn't dismiss it but I do think this idea of perpetual forward motion and improvement is something that should be harnessed and used for the betterment of others I guess that was quite profound wasn't it? Uh, that is but I agree with it and I, I think that fits with the model of what you're doing now it's it's improving what's what's there and, and making things run better as well you know i totally take i mean look, i've used it in this interview the phrase disrupting and disruptor and it, it does become quite colloquial and, and commonplace in the startup world to to say that as a verb so often one of the great things that we've worked on a few different projects together of late and so on is listening to you comparing the story of founding Hassel and founding Resi and the different ways you've gone about it. And you touch on there about the struggle for survival as a startup is often very real. And you've become quite a big proponent of different models of, of funding and not necessarily just taking venture backed money. Because whilst that becomes a very easy way to communicate that you're you know, a startup that's clearly got some traction, if you've got one of these big VC funds behind you, it's not the only way of building a business far from it. In fact, you know, 99.9% .9 of businesses aren't that way. Yeah. But it can be quite important to raise money at the beginning from different ways. And you've talked about on Clubhouse in rooms that we've been in different ways that you can do that and I'm sure that the people that listen to the show would love to hear a bit about the kind of different models that you've used for that in the past. I think it's really important to preface this because I think people often try and label me as anti-VC, which is not what I am at all. I think VC's got its place. It's just there are other sources of funding out there that can be better suited to the type of business that you're running. And I also think people forget to put this last 10 or 15 years into context, right? So since the last crash in 2008, quantitative easing has meant, I'm being glib now, but money is cheap, right? And it needs to find a home because there's not a lot of places for return. And so the amount of money poured into venture has 
gone up. And so the amount of money venture capitalists have got to deploy, it, you know, is much, much bigger. And therefore, some of the parameters in which they use have shifted, right? So some businesses that wouldn't have got funded 15 years ago are now drowning in cash. And that, that in some respects can be a good thing, but in other respects, it isn't. So if you're a software business and, you know, you build some software and then you sell it on a subscription model, you can get hockey stick growth and VC makes sense for you. If you're a services business or a business that's got slightly different intentions, maybe you don't want to grow as quickly, maybe you want to retain more control. Funding yourself through VC money is it's a hiding to nothing, right? Because you're never going to be able to sustain the growth rates or get the payback periods that make that economic model or that business model stand up. And so I'm just a big proponent of people being really honest with themselves and not kind of buying into the or drinking the Kool-Aid like a lot of us do. We're very keen on this kind of VC treadmill seed, series A, series B, growth, unicorn status. That is a small minority of businesses that suit that model. The vast majority of businesses are much better off at looking at friends and family, debt, bank loans, not fashionable, but legit, angel investment, crowdfunding. There's just so many more models. And I would just encourage people to not kind of get sucked in by this mystique, because let me tell you, as someone that's run two venture-backed companies, there is no glamour in it. It's not, you know, you might get your TechCrunch headline, but believe me, the pressure to deliver those numbers is becomes extraordinary and can do long-term damage to both your mental health and the business if it's not geared up in that way. So I guess that that would just be my lesson of the last 10 years is be really considered when you're thinking about taking money and where you're taking it from. And what do you look for in an investor? Because it's for you, it's changed slightly. You've done one business, yeah. you've run it successfully, you've been through that treadmill before, so you know what you're kind of getting yourself into. So I guess when you were raising the resi, what were the things that, you know, the power had slightly shifted. It was a proven entrepreneur looking to do it again. What types of things did you look for an investor in the, in the second time round? I think it's a great question, Jimmy. I So I looked for investors that can actually deliver value. So investors have got a track record or a deep field of expertise on network. The second thing that I looked for is anyone who got spooked by me being really honest. So I've been really honest in the past four years about what is Resi? What are we trying to do? Where are we going and how are we going to get there? And some of that is very, well, not contrarian, but not what you'd expect. And so I was very clear that we wanted to IPO as soon as we started. I did didn't want to sell for lots of reasons I could always go into at another time. And so I was, and you know, and IPOs until very recently were not trendy. They were not kind of commonplace, really. You didn't get many startup businesses saying, oh, I'm going to IPO because you could raise more money and get more, a higher valuation on the private markets. But I was very kind of focused on that. So that turned a lot of investors off. The third thing was control. Like I wasn't about to give up any control. So I didn't want any of the standard VC terms in the kind of cap table. And that put a lot of people off. And then the fourth thing is I actually went... I I went in on long-term relationships. So my two VCs now, Harry Briggs at Omers and Uwe Horseman at Project A, I've known them both for like 10 years. Would they turn on me? never say never right we could always end up in getting into it but I think the depth and strength of the relationship that I have with them means that they understand me and what I'm trying to do and, and I understand them and what they need and it's a very reciprocal relationship so I guess that's what I looked for and, and the in the angels that I took in in the initial sort of June 2017 round were really top of their game entrepreneurs or financiers that had that deep expertise and and could add value and to be honest I haven't been disappointed but like you said I had a bit of a leg up because I had this track record. <laughs> Little did they know it's all smoke and mirrors. Oh, hardly, hardly. <laughs> One of the big things that the people listening to this show, we have a lot of government ministers, policymakers, 
there is this incredible moment that the country kind of faces now as we come out of COVID, post-Brexit and so on. Yeah. You know, and housing policy, as we touched on earlier, has always been such a kind of central focus of people's owning your own home and being able to improve it, build the extension, put the conservatory on, has always been such a key part of middle two things first of all I think there's too much focus on new homes you know I already gave you the stat that there's 26 million homes homes tend to stand for between 100 years and 200 years which basically means that well you do the maths if we're building 250,000 a year it's going to take a long time (laughs) for those new homes and those new green standards and everything else that we're putting into those new homes and, and, and the questions around how actually safe and green they are come into question take a long time to replace all of those homes. So I think that the government has to take into account the existing homes that we have, and we have to be realistic about what can be done to those homes. But I'm going to throw a stat out and get this really wrong. It's either 40 or 60% of non-toxic waste comes from demolition. And a lot of the CO2 that we produce in this country is coming from leaky homes. So poorly insulated, Victorian, you know, those Victorians we all love, those Georgian houses we all love, they're leaky, they're not well insulated. And, and, you know, we're just spewing out emissions. So I think you've got to look at the existing stock and we have to come up with decent policy that allows those homes to be upgraded. That is not just incentive based because people don't take up green incentives. It's all driven by cost. And I know that from my time I'm in City Hall. And then I think the second thing is. I don't understand why the 26 million people that want to do up their homes have to pay 20, is it 20% or 25% on VAT? I don't know, 20%, right? Yeah, 20%. So they have to pay 20% to improve their home. So whether that's retrofitting it, putting in a thermal extension, thermal glass, all of that stuff, it comes at a 20% VAT. And yet the house builders get 5% VAT. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The, the balance is all out of kilter. So there, I think that's the area that the government needs to pay really close attention to. And then look, just as a throwaway, because I have to say it because it's in the news all the time, we don't need an overhaul of the planning system of any great shakes that's going to take a long time. We just need to standardise the inputs. And I kid you not, my engineer engineers could do it in a week. Every single council across the UK requires different inputs for their planning process. And then they have whole teams that have to validate those applications. And it is just a waste of everyone's time and energy when we could have one system that's completely standardised that could then start making 80% of decisions automated. You'd save so much cost and time and speed the whole thing up. So yeah, that, that's my freebie throw in there, Jimmy. Yeah, I think both of those things make sense. The latter one is a bit easier, perhaps, because tax changes and so on. Although it is a challenge, but it is amazing to kind of think about what you've said there and just how much it's tilted towards new homes being built so often because new homes can make headlines, whereas the whole thing of what you're trying to do improve housing stock is so important for that. As a final question, has there been a book that has particularly inspired you lately on your business journey? Oh, God. Oh, there's so many. I'm just uh, such a big reader. I think, and it won't surprise you when I say this, but I'm reading a book called A More Beautiful Question. 
And it is all about the art of questioning and, and why we've lost that in society. And it's a really easy listen because there's not that many points made. But <laughs> the main point is this idea of like not not knocking curiosity out of children at such a young age. And how do we reintroduce the art of questioning into the workplace and school place and even like public discourse, I guess. So I'd definitely give that a listen or a read. I've got a spare couple of hours. It's... <laughs> Seeing, seeing as my whole job now uh, revolves around asking questions on this podcast, it is probably something that I should check out at some point. That sounds a, a fabulous recommendation. It came out of our clubhouse chats when I realised how rubbish I was at asking questions. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Let's see if Clubhouse kind of revives it itself. Alex, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on this. It's been great to have you on. I'd love to do it in person later in the year and talk a bit more about that IPO journey, perhaps, because it's it's such a hot topic at the moment with Pension B, Deliveroo, Dark Trace. So many interesting things happening mm. in the space. And it'd be great to kind of hear your reasons why you prioritise that as a way forward for the business this year. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I'd love to, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them. It could be that they work at a school, college, or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills, and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork.